Good evening. Uh, what a blessing it is to be here opening the word together. So uh, if you could, grab your Bible. Let's turn to Luke chapter 2. And as you're finding your place in Luke 2, a well-worn passage for good reason and uh, such a great reminder of a great truth and a great Savior we belong to. And you can never get enough of the wonderful truth that our Savior has come into this world for sinners like us. What a blessing. So let me ask you this. What do Paul Bunyan, the Loch Ness Monster, the Fountain of Youth, and the Boogeyman have in common? They're all myths. They're all legends. No way to confirm that they ever existed. No way to confirm their reality. There's no supporting evidence. There's no undeniable proof that they exist or existed. So this is what Luke is going to do in Luke chapter two and really throughout the book of Luke, and this is the purpose why this is in your Bible. Luke will go to great lengths to show you the historical fact that Jesus Christ came into this world. In fact, this is why this is in our Bibles. All the way back in Luke chapter one, in verse four, he's writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. We don't know a whole lot about him. He's got a really cool name though. And he's writing to him, telling him by great detail, this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus accomplished. So we often call Luke like Dr. Luke. That's what he did for a living. That was his occupation. But really what we should call Luke is a thorough and intensive church historian because that's what he was. Uh, not so much in the book of Luke, that's with the life of Jesus, but with the book of Acts. And you find some under, underlying themes and some common themes with Luke in his writing. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But when you read Luke 1 and Luke 2 and also in Luke 3, he's a very detailed writer. And the Spirit of God inspired him to write a lot of names, a lot of towns, a lot of information that would be here in God's word. Why is that? Why would he do that? Why would he go to great lengths? You ever have a conversation with somebody and they're going on and on. You just ask a simple question and like, here's the point and they're like over here giving you a lot of information that just simply doesn't get to the point. Now, you have the point here as to why Luke wrote this gospel for his original audience and why it's in your Bible. And in some books of the Bible, that's a little tough to find out. This one, it's not. Verse four, chapter one, it's right there. Why it's in your Bible. But with Luke, he includes all of this information because it's backing up his point. So when we read the text tonight, you read these names, places, towns, you wonder why does this even matter? Because as the big idea is tonight, the birth of Jesus is proof that God sovereignly uses every detail to accomplish his plan. So I don't know exactly every detail that's going on in the world right now, every space particle that's floating around in the universe, but I do know this, God's using all of it to accomplish his sovereign plan. And I don't have to be smart enough to figure it all out, but I need to be humble enough to trust God and submit myself to him. 
So let's take a look at this. And Luke here as he's writing, and just keep in mind some underlying themes that Luke often has. As you read through the book of Luke, and when you read through the book of Acts, you're going to find a couple things. Number one is this, God's love and God's acceptance for outcasts. Where do you find that in the book of Luke? Well, think of Luke 15. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Uh, Think of the tax collector, the guy everybody hated, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. If you were to put odds on what would happen before these guys went to the temple, nobody would have predicted the tax collector would leave justified, but he does because he's humble and he's broken before God. That's another common theme that Luke will often expose in Luke and in the book of Acts is religious hypocrisy. How many know the names Ananias and Sapphira? Wouldn't you find it a little bit odd if like somebody had a beautiful brand newborn baby and they, and they're twins and they said, oh, we named them after Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) Talk about an awkward moment, right? What is Luke doing there? He's exposing religious hypocrisy. And he does that. And he looks here in the text how Jesus would often take on the religious establishment of his day. But here's something we're going to look at tonight in particular, is the details. Luke also wanted to give a detailed account of the life and the teachings of Jesus to a Greek or what you would call a Gentile audience. And here's what he does. Luke does a brilliant job. Obviously, he presents him as a son of man. You have Matthew, the king. Uh, You have Mark, the servant. You have Luke, the son of man. And you have John, the son of God, uh, presents Jesus as the son of God. Luke does a brilliant job of balancing the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And you find that throughout his gospel. This passage is going to help lead us to that. So let's look at Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, and let's let the word of God speak to us tonight. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time for her to give birth And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is significant. Why would the first place that the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, truly God, truly man, the first place he makes an appearance on earth in the flesh is in a stable? Why would that be? That is not a script any of us would ever write, but this is what happens. Here's what we have here. The greatest man in the world who would ever walk the face of the earth is also the most humble man. And he would come and he would humble himself to take prideful people like us and bring us to God. 
How many of you would, just to illustrate this a little bit, how many of you would agree this is the most distracted time of the year? No pun intended. This is the most distracted time of the year. How many would say that? Okay, it's just full of distractions like everywhere. And you would think like, man, we're focused on the Lord and we're focused on the incarnation. We're focused on the virgin birth. But I want you to wrestle with this question as we look at this text tonight. Wrestle with this question. Who's really in charge? Who's in charge in this passage? Is it Caesar Augustus? Is it the Roman Empire, the powerful empire of their day? Is it those taking the census so they can get it for the purpose of taxes? Who's really in charge? It's God. So ask today, with everything that's going on in the world, and you're tempted to panic, and you're tempted to be fit to be tied, and be out of sorts, and worried about what's going on in the world, and full of anxiety, just take a time out, back up, and ask. Not based on my feelings, not based on my emotions, not based on what I see in the media, not based on my circumstances, who is really in charge right now? Help me, church. God. God is the one who's in charge. So ask yourself this. So much going on. And friends, I hope you praise God that you're at a church that points your heart to Christ during this Christmas season. Because I promise you this, and I hope you're not mad at me for saying this, Hallmark Channel's probably not going to do that for you. And all the trappings of materialism and everything going on around us is probably not going to do that for you. But to constantly be reminded here as you gather with God's people, as the word is opened up, this is not about me. It's not about magic. It's not about making a perfect Christmas season. It is about Christ. And that's what the word of God constantly points us back to. So I want to ask my own heart this question today. Who's directing my heart during Christmas season? Culture or Christ? Let's wrestle with that as we look at the text. I want to read you a quote from Martin Luther that... I find to be rather convicting and, and also helpful. When I am told that God became man, I can follow the idea, but I just don't understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if I were God, would I humble myself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? Now think about that as we look at this passage. I want to highlight two things. We'll look at verses 1 through 4, then 5 through 7, or 1 through 5, then we'll look at verses 6 and 7. So first one is this. If you want to jot it down, no details ever escape God's plan. No details ever escape God's plan. Now that's something theoretically, theologically, you'd say, yeah, I, I get that. But... As we're driving down Colonial on the way to church tonight and wondering, does God really want me to go to church when traffic is moving an inch every five minutes? Is that under the canopy of God's sovereign detail? And to that, we can all say, amen, right? Yes, absolutely it is. But it's just tough to live in real life, isn't it? That's why we need progressive sanctification and to constantly be reminded from the word and to gather with God's people and to be encouraged from God's people. So what's happening in the text? Look again at verses one through five. You find a regional census here. They would not take them every 10 years. Historians tell us they would take them every 14 years. Where Joseph and his betrothed Mary, I'll get into that in a little bit of the timing as to what's exactly going on. They go to the city of David, which is better known as... Bethlehem, right. And the decree comes 
from Caesar Augustus. History sometimes calls him Octavian or Octavian. The administer of the census was Quirinius. And Luke dives into this account with two historical markers. Now again, every time you read a text, you want to ask, why is this in my Bible, okay? First one is this, the decree of Caesar Augustus for everybody, most translations say the whole world, but it's really the whole empire. They were not in China or Japan at that time or in South America, North America, the Native Americans doing a census. It was the Roman Empire. So... There's this decree, everybody needed to be registered. And second, the decree from Quirinius, who was governor of, you find in the text, Syria. Now, what's the big deal about this? Well, two things. These are both facts. They're historical accounts. These are real people who existed, not open for debate. So like when I was born, some moons ago, there was somebody who was president. There was somebody who was governor of the state that I was born in. There were historical things that were happening. My birth certificate gives proof to that. My driver's license, my passport, all gives proof to that. What's the purpose of the census? You want to help me with this? Taxes, right. Boy, how many of you love those, right? They needed to determine how much each individual would pay in taxes. And the whole empire, as the CSB translates this, would undergo this census. Now, what kind of individuals were the ruling figures in Jesus' day? God-fearing, God-exalting, word-loving, submitting to the law of God. In fact, you look at them, you know what they were? Wicked, pagan, secular, God-rejecting. We don't have to be rocket scientists to ask, who are the majority of the, let's be careful here, Romans 13, let scripture guide our thinking, of the God-ordained authorities that God has brought into our lives? Wicked, pagan, secular, God-rejecting. But can we still be godly people? Read 1 Peter 2, where he gives them clear examples of how they could even honor the emperor while still loving God. Now, this is important to understand. Think of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Two realities at play here. You don't want to miss in the passage because it's easy just to read this and think, I want to get to the real good part. Yeah, I know Jesus was born, and, but it's easy today. You've got, you've got in the world today that we live in, that God has placed us in, this mountain of distractions just coming at us every single day, bombarding us, telling us you're really not celebrating Christmas or enjoying the holiday season unless you do X, Y, and Z. And nearly all of it tells us to forget this. And yet we have the word here that tells us exactly why we celebrate and why we are who we are. And it's all because of God's sovereign, detailed, divine plan. None of this was an accident. So there's two things at play here in the text. You find the human dynamic, the hunger for power, the hunger for authority, the Roman Empire, all of that's there. And then you find this, and this will never fail. The Roman Empire is gone. But today, tonight, the divine and sovereign purposes of God being worked out with a little baby who'd be born to die for his people, 
to carry out the sovereign plan of God ordained from before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we serve a great God, do we not? And even through all of these details, when the people would look at the Roman Empire and they would tremble with fear, with all of their economic and military power, God is still God. And he is the one we must bow to. So ask yourself this question, easy. Everybody gets an A on this one. This will help everyone's, I'm gonna sound like a teacher, everyone's cumulative GPA tonight. You ready for this? Who's sovereign in this text? God or Caesar? God, let's never forget that. So when culture is just pulling and tugging at our hearts and telling us, well, you can kind of forget God a little bit with this. We don't have to be as biblical in our thinking about this. We could compromise just a little bit. No, this is really what it is all about. We must bow before him. God is sovereign over every single detail. I want to take you back several years, almost 32 years, Christmas season, my senior year of high school, unchurched, never been in church in my life. Uh, outside, I went to a couple times with some friends, but that was just because I was getting a free meal afterwards, but nothing really serious. And I asked my mom that year, I was about to graduate high school. We went from my eighth grade year to my senior year. We never lost a football game. Okay, now some of you you look at me, you think, yeah, that guy played football? I thought he did gymnastics. That's usually not what people say. But we went all those years, not lost a football game. Senior year, we lost semifinals, and it crushed us, crushed me. Just spiraled down into just darkness. And I thought to myself, coming upon Thanksgiving, I thought, you know, I'm about to graduate high school. I have no idea what I want to do for a living. And, you know, every home has to have like a refrigerator, a microwave, and a Bible, okay? So I thought, I'll ask my mom for a Bible. So I asked um, my mom for a Bible, and that Christmas, 1991, the first time I ever opened up the Bible in my life, I was 17 years of age. And I remember going up Christmas Day, reading my Bible in my bedroom for the first time. It was one of those Bibles that said, words of Christ in red. So I opened up to Matthew chapter one, and I thought I was reading a Jewish phone book. Like, what, how many know what's in Matthew chapter one, right? All of these names, what in the world is going on here? So I call my friend who'd been witnessing to me, sharing the gospel with me, and he came over that night, and he shared the best news I'll ever hear of God's love and mercy and grace to sinful God-rejecting, Christ-rejecting people like me who said his name in vain and made fun of his people, made fun of his word, mocked his word, mocked his truth. And I thought to myself, so he knows all that about me and I can still be forgiven? Like, really? And he shared with me and he took some time to share this with me, the, the truth of eternity and the truth of how Jesus died in our place on the cross. Our sin needed to be paid for. It needed to be punished. It required judgment. And how Jesus endured that judgment in our place. And that, you know, I, I had heard this theoretically. I always saw churches. I saw crosses. I saw all of this. I didn't know what any of it was about. My prayer life consisted of, God, I hope I get a date to homecoming and prom, and I hope we win the game. And I hope my friends like me. Make sure life works out well for me. That was my prayer life. It was about me. And he taught me about how a savior who died three days later rose again from the dead to give life to all who believe. And he's ascended up into heaven 
And he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father right now. I did not come to faith in Christ that night. A few days later, he picked me up for church and I went to church for the first time in a pair of stonewashed jeans and a pink t-shirt. Thankfully, I'm not wearing that tonight. But that was in style back then. And that morning, God, who ordained the car ride, who gave and prompted in my heart to ask for a Bible, God, who brought the right person in my life at the right time, God, who opened my darkened eyes that day to the truth of the gospel, drew me to himself, and I came to faith in Christ, and God supernaturally changed my life. And I say all of that, the same story you have, maybe not the same circumstances, but the same Savior, the same sinful condition, the same need that we all had. I say that to say, none of that was an accident. The town I was born in, the town I grew up in, the same thing with you, the home you grew up in, where you are today, none of that is an accident because God is sovereign over the details. See that here in the text. See that here. It's not Caesar Augustus. It's not the Roman Empire. It is God because the birth of Jesus is proof that God sovereignly uses every detail to accomplish his plan. Now, ask yourself this, and it's easy to lose sight of this. Who is sovereign over what's going on in this chaotic world today? God has not fallen asleep. God has not taken a personal day. God is still sovereign. He's still in absolute control. It is not the United Nations. It's not the United States. It's not the European Union. And it's not one of the presidential candidates. It's not either political party. It is God. So let's make sure in our hearts we bow to him and understand this. His sovereign purposes will prevail. Now, take a look again at your Bible. Look at verses four and five. I want us to see something here. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Something to understand about the promises and in particular the prophecies of the Bible. They're not 80% accurate. They're not 90% accurate. They're not even 99.99999% accurate. They're always 100% accurate. If you believe that with all your heart, say amen, okay? Even down to the very last detail. Bethlehem? Like, wow. Notice here this in the text. Now, Luke calls Mary betrothed to Joseph. I would call this betrothed in the Bible. I think the best way to explain it would be like an upper level legal engagement. All right, a little bit different than what we have today in Western culture, that when you're engaged, you can just break it off and there's no legalities involved with it. That's not the way it was in Jewish culture. A betrothal was like an upper level engagement. But... By this time, if you follow the chronological order of events and what's happening, they actually would have been married by this point. So, no accidents in the word. Why would Luke refer to her as his betrothed? And I think the reason would be this. Uh, one writer writes this, likely to emphasize the fact that their marriage had not been consummated due to the fact that they would have no sexual relations until after Jesus was born. 
Why bring that up? Well, because the virgin birth matters. Why does the virgin birth matter? Well, because Jesus was not conceived by a human father. Jesus was conceived by, can you help me here with this? The Holy Spirit, which means he did not inherit original sin like I did and like you did from your earthly father, from the seed passed on all the way back to Adam. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, God's prophecies are not 99.9% accurate, they're 100% accurate, which means Mary would be a virgin when Jesus would be born. Now note this, both Joseph and Mary would have known, Jewish background, they would have known well Micah 5 verse 2, that prophesied the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Both received angelic messages that told them this would happen. Joseph descended from David, who grew up in Bethlehem. This was also Joseph's hometown. Now, this passage is going to go into great detail about a great prophecy that's fulfilled. And you'll hear this verse, I hope we do, and I hope you go over this and meditate on it even throughout the Advent or the Christmas season. Micah 5, verse 2, but oh, or but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, important phrase here, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And think of this trek. If you've been to Israel before, you know how this is. It looks small on a map, but the trek from Nazareth down to Bethlehem would be about 85 to 90 miles. Now let's just not read the text and think of, you know, nice paved, polished roads. This is a woman who is nine months pregnant. This would be a very arduous journey for her to make. And the Christmas in the incarnation story in scripture demonstrates how the Bible goes to great lengths to give details. And God is showing here, the birth of Jesus is not an accident. The birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of the promises of God of which he will always be faithful. Something to remember every single day of our lives. So think of this, creation, it didn't just happen. God spoke it into existence. And when you read Genesis 1, he gives a ton of details. From the little termites that we don't want in our homes, those little lizards that I never really saw until we moved to Florida, and they're really fast. God created them, and he gives us details as to when and how he created them. The deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt did not just happen. God gives details. Think of David. Think of the lineage of David. Ruth did not just happen or by chance meet Boaz. Who's the one in charge in the book of Ruth? All four chapters, you see God working. All through that, God is at work. And you didn't just happen to be born one day and happen to be in the right place at the right time to hear the gospel. None of that is luck. All of it is sovereignty. I asked my students this past week, I said, Picture yourself as a student in high school in North Korea right now. And picture yourself going up to a teacher in North Korea and saying, look what I just got. I just got a brand new study Bible. 
that was smuggled into the country by somebody, and I get to read about the true and living God in this Bible. Now imagine this. Imagine this student in high school telling a teacher in North Korea, and you know what this, this word tells me? Kim Jong-un is not Lord, Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I don't think we have to be a historical scholar to know what, what do you think would happen to that child? Maybe that child's family. Now, what's the difference between that child and students we would see every day if a student came up to me and said, hey, Mr. Hess, I got a brand new study Bible. What do you think I'm gonna say? I'm gonna be like, amen, that's awesome. Let me see it. This is great. Awesome, you've got yourself a Bible. What's the difference between that child and the other child? Here's the difference. God. God is the difference. We are where we are today by the goodness of God and by the grace of God. God is so good to us. And I want you to think about that for a moment as we read this. God in his goodness and his grace, and I don't know why he did this with me, but he chose to open my eyes to this truth. And I never want to get over that. That God is so good. That this is not folklore, it's not myth, it's not a fable, it's not a tale. This is truth. Not just general details, but specific details. Think of Galatians 4, 3 through 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God is so powerful, so big, so good, so sovereign, so omniscient, so omnipotent, so omnipresent, that he's even in charge of the details of our lives. If you doubt that in any way, and I hope you don't, I trust you don't. I, I, we're here on a Wednesday night. I believe most of you love the Lord, know the Lord. But just consider for a moment when life goes awry, when things don't happen the way we want them to. Let's not forget the very hairs of our head are numbered. He's the one who ordains every breath we take. He's the one who wrote down, if I'm reading Psalm 139 correctly, the days we would live before we even lived. He's the one who ordained all of that. And I will not live and you will not live a day longer than God's sovereign ordination for our lives. God is the one who's in charge. So when we read this, it's not big about a season. This gives us a bigger view, a bigger glimpse. Uh, and I pray in my own heart, a bigger awe and worship and wonder of the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no way a human script would write this. This has to be of God. Second thought is the greatest becomes the most humble. Look at verse six, if you would. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So picture in your mind the typical modern day understanding of Christmas, the Christmas story. Mary's just randomly passing into town and she randomly passes into hard labor and they come into Bethlehem with a welcome to Bethlehem sign outside. 
And then Joseph, now here's where I want to get real technical with you. Joseph's frantically going from motel to motel and home to home, but there's no room for them in the end because they just had no room for Jesus. Let's examine that line of thinking just a little bit. This is followed in the typical way that people portray this as a quick labor. And Mary all of a sudden is holding this beautiful baby boy. Now, uh, not all of you, but a lot of us, there was a generational gap there um, where some of you, when your children were born, the men here, you went into the other room and then you came into the room after the baby was born and cleaned up and sanitized. Uh, some of us were there when our children were born. And I'm gonna tell you this, there's no way to sanitize that experience. Uh, the baby comes into the, into the world and it is a wonderful thing to see and it is totally of God, but it is really, for me at least, a very life-changing experience. When our son was born and our daughter was born, it was awesome. But there's really no sanitized way to explain that. Now think of this. Let's just be honest here as we look at this. There are some common passages and I try to make this clear, uh, I try to a lot when I teach, you'll always get more out of the Bible when you properly interpret the Bible. You wanna get more out of your Bible reading, and I trust you do, then you always wanna find out what was the original author's intent for the original audience, and that will always give you more out of the passage. And you'll understand the Holy Spirit's intent when the Holy Spirit inspired that passage. So, Think of like, and I, I had children's books for our children when they were small that had Noah hiding behind a rock looking for two little mice and he would come out of that rock and get them and gobble them up and bring them onto the ark. Looks cool. Makes for a nice story. It's just not biblical because God is the one who brought the animals to the ark. And a lot of times this happens where many have done this to the passage, okay? The term in could literally, and if you have an ESV translation of the Bible, likely at the very bottom of your page, there's a number four there on the footnote that says, or guest room. That's literally what that would mean. Let me let Bible scholar and pastor Peter Mead explain this. He writes this well. For 3,000 years in the Middle East, single room homes would have mangers, either cut into the floor or freestanding because their few animals would be brought in at night. Now, this is important to understand. Of the most humble, excruciating circumstances, somebody could be born into this world. This boy who was promised, this boy who is great, would come into this world in the most humbling of circumstances. And most people at that time would have thought as Rome as being great. But it's Christ who is always great. I want you to listen carefully to the words of Jesus. As he talks about this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, he says, it shall not be so among you. The second person plural there is really important. Among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus could say that with the highest of integrity because he actually lived it. 
He actually lived it. How many would honestly say tonight, and my hand will be up with you, that from time to time, we struggle with being a humble-hearted servant to others that consider with the mind of Christ, think of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, that consider the other person more important than us. How many would struggle with that? My hand's up there with you, okay? We struggle with that sometimes. And I, sometimes I ask myself this question, why is it so difficult to have a servant's heart? And I think of pride, I think of selfishness, I think of like making an idol out of my schedule, making an idol out of money at times, making an idol out of wanting just the right people in our lives. I want you to listen to this quote that's, I I don't remember who this is from, but one author, I had this written down quite a while back. He came to people like us so he could bring people like us to God. The Christmas story is not primarily about a perfectly cozy, decorated, magical time of year. Rather, it's about this, a humble, faithful family who obeyed God. And when I read Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and I read Luke 1 and 2, I think, man, how would I have handled that if I were Joseph? How would I handle that? How would a young lady handle what Mary went through? When I read that, just think of this. It's about a humble humble servants who trusted God, were used by God, and were faithful servants and vessels by which God would bring the Messiah into the world. Now, we understand this. We do not worship Mary. We do not pray to Mary. We do not practice Mariolatry. We do not believe Mary was assumed up into heaven. And we do not believe Mary uh, did not have original sin. And to that, we all say amen, right? But she was a faithful woman of God. She loved the Lord. Now, how do I know she was a sinner? You look back at Luke 1, I think, verse 47. Yes, and she says, I rejoice in God, my Savior. So she was a sinner saved by grace. But I would say this, you have to respect the testimony of somebody faithful, humble, a chaste servant of the Lord. Caesar, the great Roman Empire, were nothing compared to this little child. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's circle back. They're not the sovereign ones. God is. Look at all the military might of the United States of America. They're not the sovereign ones. We're not the sovereign ones. God is. Nations, empires come and go. From everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90, you are God. God uses a census to direct a poor and humble family to Bethlehem, mostly unnoticed, to fulfill a very intricate Old Testament prophecy. Because it's not 99.9% accurate, it's 100% accurate. Now remember this, our God is so sovereign and so much control that he controls every last detail of the birth of the Son of God. Remember, not by luck, not by chance, not by fate, but by our sovereign God who rules and reigns over empires. Here's God's plan for each of us. True greatness comes through humility. It always comes through that. True greatness. The people 
that I would say the vast majority of you are drawn to magnetically in a friendship and in even a discipleship kind of relationship where there's like relational equity built between you two and where somebody's mentoring you, holding you accountable, uh, loving you in the Lord, uh, directing you. The kind of people, I, I trust you have friends in your life and I have friends in my life like this that when I'm with them, I want to spend more time with the Lord. I want to be more like Jesus because I've spent time with them. Um, I want to be closer to the word. And it's not because they're prideful. It's because they're humble. They just exude the fragrance of Christ in their lives because there's a real rich humility that they have that is not tacit, it's not fake, it's not artificial, it's real. They really, truly love the Lord. If you have friends like that in your life, and, and you may not have an abundance of friends like that, give praise to God tonight. Give praise to God. The greatest people you know are those who have a humble servant's heart. And God's plan is greatness that comes through humility. I don't think if we have a praise and testimony time, a lot of us stand up and say, you know what? I am so glad that God humiliates me and breaks me of my pride. It's so much fun. It's so great. I love going through it. But with hindsight always being 2020, and there's mile markers and benchmarks that are a little bit in the past. I remember as a kid, my grandmother lived in Sebring, Florida. I used to love coming to Florida as a, as a kid. And we would always drive, three of us as kids, parents in the front seat. We had a Mercury Grand Marquis, and we're all packed in the back. I mean, we were singing the doxology all the way from Chicago down here. Okay, it was just wonderful. I'm kidding. But we would, we would hit the Florida state line. And we would say, I mean, wow, we're in Florida. Like, man, we're so close to everything. Like, we hit the Florida state line. We all know this. You hit the Florida state line, you're not close to anything. <laughs> Nothing. You're far away from everything. It's like, does this state ever end? And as a little kid who's impatient, you're just wondering, like, when am I going to get there? And we often ask that as followers of Jesus. Look, I'm not where I want to be, not even close. Boy, I hope the trajectory of my life is headed there. And that's why we constantly have to go back to Christ-likeness. The goal is not just facts. The goal is not just knowledge. The goal is heart transformation from knowledge that comes in the head that goes down to the heart because that's the longest journey we're ever gonna make in life. It's from our head down to our heart. Listen to this, you know the words, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you through his poverty, might become rich. I want to read for you a well-known passage, just a good reminder tonight from my own heart. Philippians 2, let me read verses 5 all the way down to 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, reading about this here in Luke, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. What did the humility of Jesus entail? A cross, a place of death, a place of pain, a place of crucifixion, a place of bloodshed, a place of humility. 
And yet we think like being humbled is an easy process, but it's a good process. Now think of this. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that includes Caesar Augustus. And it includes every God-rejecting, God-ordained power that's there on this planet today. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how do we respond to being humbled? We want to be like the Savior then we really want to be humble and to be humbled and to accept this. Joseph and Mary are often overlooked, but here's what we have to see. God is sovereign in the details, the details of what's going on. So let's circle all back. Let me ask you this question again. What do Paul Bunyan, the Loch Ness Monster, the Fountain of Youth, Bigfoot, the Boogeyman, and a good Chicago Bears team all have in common? They're myths and they're legends. They're fables. They're not true. There's no way to confirm their reality. There's no supporting evidence and undeniable proof that they exist or existed. But here's the facts from this message. Jesus Christ was born. It's truth. Do you believe that tonight? It's truth. And God is completely sovereign over the details. 